0: everybody welcome to another episode of the fraud boxer podcast today is an episode that i've been uh, really excited for uh it's all about learning and development and i have a good friend of mine named steve ashton here with me today how are you doing
1: i'm great thank you jordan yeah really good
0: yeah it's good to, to have you on here um i know this is something that we've been talking about for a little while uh, you're a busy man so it's hard to pin you down sometimes totally understand that. But I think uh, it's an exciting time for you because you are uh, launching a new product. And I think it's something that is very exciting for a lot of people and a lot of companies. Uh, This is something that I know that I'm super into as a people manager, Um, learning and development. uh, It's really on the the forefront of a lot of people's minds, a lot of companies' minds, as they start looking at humans and their people that they have in a, a better light and making sure that their mental health is good, making sure that they're what they're telling their employees and such is really impactful for the business and makes people want to stay. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk a little bit about your history and and your thoughts on that. So, shall we?
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. So I mean, I've got a bit of an odd career. I've kind of gone off in in tangents. It's called, I almost I always view it a bit like a like a sandwich, right? So, um, the first part of my career was spent in learning and development and consultancy, business growth consultancy, specializing. For myself in the learning and development field, so I spent a number of years doing that, traveling all over the world, training people in quote unquote soft skills. So it's things like leadership, sales, um, communication skills, relationship management, that kind of stuff. And then I, the company I worked for, did a management employee buyout, which so we were able to buy shares at a low cost, well at an opening cost, and then potentially sell them later on, which is what I did. And I wanted to start a career in sort of my first passion, which was performing. So I wanted—I was on track to go into drama school when I was younger, when I was sort of 18, 19. I got into a couple of good schools. RADA was one, um, which is a bit like the New York School of Performing Arts type of equivalent over here. It's pretty much the prestige school. So I got into RADA. I couldn't go because I couldn't afford to, my parents couldn't afford to pay for me to go, and I couldn't get a grant to go. So I decided to, I'll take a couple of years, save up some money, get a job, and then go back to it. And of course, life takes over. Um, 20-odd years later, I kind of go, oh, yeah, I was going to go to drama school, wasn't I? So I spent a lot of time in uh, learning and development, left that, um, and then went into radio. So I worked as a radio presenter on a breakfast show. Did that for a bit, a few years. and, And I was also in small radio stations here in the UK. It's not like in, say, LA, where you've got, you know, a dozen really big radio stations. It's like the way that licensing works here is, per region you only have one commercial radio station so you pretty much own the market so I you, and also you do more than one job so I was managing the sales advertising team and also doing the breakfast show so I so I did two jobs Wow! and then I went from that yeah I went from that into um uh, working in television so I, I thought you know the next logical step is try and get into TV now given my age I was sort of in my early 30s I wasn't getting you know MTV type of you know Ryan Seacrest kind of gigs so I thought the easiest step to make as an introduction into that would be the world of shopping television where in the early sort of 2000s there were it just exploded here in the UK yeah. we'd always had QVC and our equivalent home shopping but there were a ton of um what they call reverse auction channel. So a product would come on and it'd say, this product is, um, you know, 500 pounds. And the more people who come in to buy it, the price goes down. It's complete nonsense. It's complete bullshit scam. But um, sounds like <laughs> yeah, you'd basically you'd lower the price to wherever you've got anyway. But, so I worked on a shopping channel that started off selling the usual crap that everybody else sold. But then we specialized in jewelry. And I did really well at that. So then I became sales manager and then sales and marketing director and then kind of de facto managing director for a couple of periods because we changed managing directors and I sort of stood in for like two or three months a couple of times. So, and we grew the company from seven million pounds turnover to 68 in three years. So we really exploded. We expanded into Japan, Germany, and the United States. So we set up a channel in Reno. So I came over for a couple of months helping them, those guys set up in Reno. I'm sorry. Which was a very interesting. Reno experience. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Um, and then I left there to go and set up another channel. But then that was 2008. And the people who were supporting and, and backing the channel pulled out because it was 2008 and the money just went. So I scrapped around and thought, what shall I do? What can I do? So I started freelancing. And then I got a gig at American Express. And I thought, you know what, this might be quite a nice, safe gig for a year until until things pick up again. And then I've been there. I was there for 12 years. I literally left there um, about two weeks ago. And I've set up on my own, basically. Um, So I worked for a certifier, many of your listeners may know, and I was the chief learning officer. So I basically ran training um, across the organization. I ran training in uh, Mexico, Australia, uh, Japan. Um, um, mainland Europe all over mainland Europe the UK of course uh, yeah Mexico and uh, the United States so I'd go over to I'd come over to LA and I'd come over to um, Chicago a a lot which is where we're based and essentially run uh, soft skills development you know sales relationship management and then the last few years I specialized in something called executive presence which is and storytelling which are two really I don't know if trendy is the right word, but but it, they're two very popular subjects at the minute, executive presence. And I think in particular, given what we've just come out of where, you know, most of us are, are used to now doing a lot more meetings and business and interactions over, you know, digitally, you know, over Teams or Zoom or, or whatever platform. And and I think what's kind of missing a little bit is what, as people come back together um, is, is sort of missing that. That, that kind of, as I say, the presence, you know, being be able to be authentic and connect with people authentically and really tap into the hearts and minds of others. So as we're moving more back to, quote unquote, a normal kind of way of working where we're doing more business face to face, then there's a real need for it. So I'm specializing in those two areas. And I always say that, you know, people who are in my field come from one of three backgrounds. They either have been in learning development their whole career. And I know a lot of people who are like this. They say they're leadership, you know, experts, change management gurus and experts, but they've only ever really worked for themselves or only ever really worked in learning and development. They haven't got experience of running a business or, um, you know, and I I hear lots of of training professionals go, oh, their stories are always, I had a client who, rather than I was in this position myself. So there's that. They're performers. Who can't get acting work. So they go into the corporate world teaching people how to uh, have more stage presence, how to have more uh, authenticity and and more charisma, or they're business people who bring that experience. And all three have value um, and all three do great jobs. I do all three. So I've got business experience of running business, dealing with suppliers, uh, dealing, you know, being out buying. Um, well, it was jewelry, so buying gold and buying jewelry, working with suppliers, working with um, TV uh, networks to get our channel onto there. So I've got that sort of practical business experience. I'm a performer as well. So I spent years on st- doing musical theater, uh, doing uh, stand up, the TV, the radio, and also podcasting, which is where we
0: yeah.
1: uh became familiar as well as working at Certify. Um, and um and you know 30 odd years on and off of learning and development so I like to think that I offer something pretty unique that in terms of bringing all those three things together um and I've been doing it for years right so I, and I've trained people literally about you know over a thousand people in executive presence and storytelling all over the world and I have to tell you Jordan th- those skills are equally applicable in in any walk of life and in any culture you know from you know, the folk you know the folks I work with in Japan to uh, the folks in India and you know you tweak it slightly because of cultural yeah. norms and the way that people do business right so um, but those those skills essentially about about being authentic and connecting with people and being yourself um really resonate so that's what I'm doing at the moment I've just started doing that the last few weeks so I'm busily uh, trawling LinkedIn and sending unsolicited marketing. <laughs> uh sales uh message dms to people that i used to despise getting but now i feel really guilty because i'm doing it myself
0: yeah but i mean you have to especially when you're starting your brand and i think that what what you were talking about there where there's like the, the three different types of of folks that do this work it that was really resonating with me like i've done a lot of workshops Obviously, yeah. throughout my entire career, um, I did some of the Robert Fritz stuff, um, which is a consultant now over in Vermont. Uh, his managerial moment of truth, as well as a lot of his art stuff. I think that that he had a pretty cool tie-in with like how to get in touch with like your creative side and everything, and then how to apply that into your um, your professional life. Hmm. But um, one of the things I think that that for me personally that that I've tried to work on the last few years, probably last five or six years, um, is the Robert Greenleaf uh, situation or. Not, uh, the not situation leadership, I'm sorry, uh, servant leadership, uh, yeah. Robert Greenleaf there. And he uh, basically the, the theory is there's five pillars, you know, and at the end, it boils down to you're there to support your employees. And that's something that really has resonated with me. I have had a lot of different teams, a lot of diverse teams, um, which I'm super proud of, and not a lot of turnover in my teams. You know, obviously, there's always going to be people that don't always agree with, with what I, how I run my team and, and those sorts of things. But the- yeah. I think that that's that's me pretty well. But I will say as far as executive presence, that's something that my my first boss that I had at Ticketmaster um, was really like driving home for me is yeah. like, through my growth, like you, as you start as a regular employee, you, you come into this entry level, you start to work, you know, you you get your your rhythm, you either have an aptitude to to go into management or kind of to stay as an individual contributor, I took the management track and started going that route. But it is a lot of it is stuff that you learn along the way through experience, mm-hmm. but there are things that you can polish. And yeah. I remember she would always like sit in, in a room with me and on her whiteboard. She's like, I'm going to work on your executive presence. My goals were always executive presence. Mm. And like that sounds great. You know, it sounds great on paper, but like, what does that really mean? Am I going to be in a room with like the executives? Am I going to be like, what does that mean? And it's not, it's more than just dressing. It's how you convey the information, you know, and I'm sure you know all that. And we can talk about that in a minute and and how that works out. But it's that's something that really, really resonated with me was the executive presence and then how to storytelling and especially at, at companies like Ticketmaster, where there, there's large companies where we have a large parent company. How does your piece fit into the overall picture and you need to tell that story, like when a C level is looking at a slide deck like they don't want to see a whole bunch of words. Yeah, like and now that I'm in a position where I'm starting to come into like the low level executive thing I agree. <laughs> Tell me yeah. what what the slide says? Like, what is the story? Where do we where do we start? Where are we at? What's our current reality, you know, all these things. So like, I'm blending a lot of, of my management stuff inside, like, from all the things, all the pieces that I've learned, I, I'm, I've taken chunks of that and applied it. And I think I have found a, a pretty good, good way. But I do appreciate, like I said earlier, that businesses are making this investment in their learning and development, piece of the business to continually grow and educate their their leaders to be better leaders now you know obviously like they there's they bring in different different groups you know you're walking on coals whatever you got to be doing you know but i think that a lot of like the 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 core of these these things is really good and like the networking and and like the getting people together where you can candidly speak in an environment about issues and is is so valuable to organizations yeah
1: so it's interesting. One of the things, one one of the, the very first day I started at American Express, my my uh, leader at the time said, "I want you to start thinking about the job you want in three years." And I was like, "What? Why?" We had the and, same boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So, he's, so I said, "Well, why is that?" He said, "Well, the the philosophy and ethos at American Express is they like people to go across business units, learn the whole business." Uh, because it will make them more effective so rather than sort of specializing and that's great so you do learn leadership skills that you can apply across the organization and that's very highly valued the downside of course then is you get people managing functions who know nothing about the function that they're managing um and you know and and it depends on the individual you simply get people then who come into a leadership role who don't have the experience or knowledge or skills in that area, and I've had a couple of bosses like this who don't have anywhere near my skills and experience and, and uh, knowledge, uh, and they simply just they simply want to tick the box and get a at a boy from their boss. So it would you know so they don't apply some of the things. So the, the example because I'm I come from a consultancy background and I've got the consultancy mindset, which is around inquiry, active inquiry and action research. So it's someone says I want some training, and I I ask why. And say, so, well, because this is this thing is happening. So I say, well, okay. So and you're assuming that training is the answer. Well, let's look at all the environmental factors and economic factors and everything else that go around it and determine. Sure, uh, training may be one aspect of that, but if there are tons of other environmental factors that are affecting the output, then training is not going to answer that. So I'm not, you know, my salespeople aren't selling enough. Give them sales training is the usual one. Okay, well, we can do, but I assume, given that they're experienced salespeople, they've probably had 20 different sales trainings. So I'm either going to regurgitate the stuff they've already done or completely change their philosophy and and the way they go about it. Now, systems and processes and maybe even technology needs to change if I'm going to do that. So let's do some more inquiry. And I've had bosses who've come in and gone, uh, they want, you know, someone was like, uh, uh, we want some training. And the boss has said, how many training do you want? And they said, we want four training. And then that person said, Steve, can you do four training on this? And it's like, well, why are we doing training? You know, so it's, there's a downside to that too, in terms of, um, it'll take three years to build up the, some level of skill and knowledge and experience. And then by the time that you've done that, and you're actually doing the job effectively, you're off kind of thing. So, you know, there's kind of two sides to that coin, I guess
0: yeah that's a really really i love the inquiry part like mm. the why because i think like so much in in the model like with workday on on end systems you come into an organization and you just get assigned a training course like, yeah here's a module take it and they have all of these things like i think especially during like through COVID and stuff you know a lot of a lot of like social and, and cultural things were happening so a lot of a lot of trainings were being done, but they were just assigned, and, and people weren't having those difficult conversations that they needed to have. Yeah. And I think that when you get in and you really explore the whys of things, like the, the underlying issues of of what is really leading to this, is is a big chunk that people miss out on.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so and I'm, and excellent. you know, put it. I was going to say, put it in in really simple terms. You're looking at the sales thing, so why are my salespeople making enough sales? Is the market down? Are there new? Are there competitors that are doing it better, cheaper, faster than we are? Um, uh, what's the marketing spend? Are we spending and putting our attention in the right places? What's our sales pipeline look like? What's the conversion rate from appointments to signed deal to whatever? How are we qualifying on these? All of that type of stuff that goes beforehand, you know, wasn't being looked into and wasn't being researched. The assumption was we're doing everything that we did do, and it worked in the past, therefore it should work now. So just give them some more training, kind of thing. That's you know looking at that solution when it's when really you know training is probably the last thing that they possibly need. They just need to be taught to use the systems that they already are available correctly, making sure their pipeline and making sure Salesforce or whatever um platform that they're using is populated correctly and you know the marketing's you know on point as the marketing change what's the marketing message what's the value proposition has that changed etc etc you know
0: i always hate so much when like i either join an organization or i talk to a new team or i change a process and they say well that's not how we do it we've always done it like yeah and the reason that they're even or even sitting in that room having this conversation is because the way you've always done it isn't working anymore. Like you have to evolve, you have to change, you have to adapt. And I think that that's great, especially with like how products change and all of that, like the product that you had that was awesome 10 years ago might not be awesome now, you know, and somebody else might've had an innovative product now and how are you going to adapt? So you can't be on the salespeople picking up the phone more times, isn't going to result in more sales, you know, like definitely, I love that where you have to look at the whole the whole life cycle of it. So and you know,
1: a cert, I want to say, certify um, was good at this because you know, in the early days uh, in the fraud landscape, there were only maybe three, five players, right? And that. certify was yeah, certify used to be the sexy young thing on the on the on the block, and then obviously that changed because that's just the nature of business, and they were one of the things that they were great at was making everything bespoke. And that was what people were attracted to because mm-hmm. we, we could do this, we'll change this, we'll change that. But of course, that takes an awful lot of time and investment from a developing from a developer's point of view um, and programming and coding and support and all that sort of stuff. And that was very um, labor intensive. And that was fine when you've got 10 clients. Then when you've got 50, 100, 200, 1,000 clients, you can't do that. So you've yep. got to adapt and change and certify we're good at spotting that. Um, and particularly with, a lot of, um, particularly sort of, you know, people going through their second or third round of funding. They basically try to buy the market. You know, young, sexy players say, "We can do everything that Certified does. We'll use AI. We'll use machine learning, yeah, and uh, we'll do it cheaper because we're not labour intensive. We've not got manual intervention and uh, manual review and all that sort of stuff. We'll do it cheaper." So they won business, which enabled them then to get their next round of funding. But could they do what Certified did better, stronger, faster? Probably not. Um, but certainly on paper, it looked like they did And again, because it's you know a new sexy kid on the block that people kind of go, oh, they you know their marketing is great, and they're basically trying to buy the market um, by offering low prices again, so they could get their level three or four funding or whatever.
0: Yeah, and then um, they go and, broke and disappear, and then you're stuck exactly, with fraud yeah. And you got to go back find yeah. something
1: else. <laughs> yeah, or they live. I mean, I don't know if you like if you if you saw the uh, comedy TV show Silicon Valley. Oh yeah,
0: oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's
1: that's a really great. A really great depiction I think of certainly in the fraud space you know of uh that they make no money whatsoever but there's lots and lots of interest and tons of people going oh your product is amazing let's give you money and then it just gets spent very quickly you know so so it's it's an interesting thing and I think for, you know leadership is in desperately important in those times and being able to be flexible and to be uh, again like you're saying not you know, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. So if you want to get a different result, then change something. You know, the definition of madness being you keep doing the same thing, expecting different results, you know?
0: Yeah. And I'm always known as the guy that comes into companies. Like I I, I stick to the the philosophy, like the first 90 days, it's a, another book. I mean, yeah. I've, I've read a lot of management books. Wow. Um, that you you need to spend your first like 90 days observing the processes and, and like the people getting to know your people, getting to know the business, getting to know the why of things, because there are reasons why processes are done. Like mm. there, there might be like, even at my current company, you know, like how we do our fraud screening has to be done in a certain order because of how our, back end systems run and in the flow of how we reprocess our payments and how we send out the orders. And then yeah. how it was at Ticketmaster was completely different than versus how it was at Fandango or even how it was at Gift, you know, like the like new tech platforms have have different options that you can do versus old legacy platforms where like Ticketmaster, for example, is super old. But all the other yeah. ones that I've worked on have all been pretty new. So I spend a lot of time trying to get to know what what things are and why they are before I change. And I see so many times like Managers, especially managers that have been managers for a really long time, uh, like yeah. like decades, they come into a business and they try to come in like Miley Cyrus, like a wrecking ball, just boom, <laughs> rip it all out. Why are you guys doing it this way? We're gonna do it like this without understanding the underlying structure of the reason of that, and then it leads to frustration from the existing like team because yeah. they're not like they're not being heard when they're saying, well, we do it like this because like yeah. the manager's just not listening. They're like, I'm the boss. This is how I'm going to do it without mm-hmm. understanding. And then it creates this disruption in in the, the, the processes later and often leads to failure. Like, yeah. I think that you, one of the things that, that, that I pride myself on, I, I'll never forget, like um, when I was crossing over into management, I was looking back on all of the things that I hated about previous managers to try and see if I could like not, be that guy. And I remember like one like one of like a real epiphany moment for me was I was driving in a car on the 405 here in L.A. um, Super busy, jam packed freeway for those that that don't know. Absolutely atrocious. And I was supposed to be at my job at 10 a.m. We try to offset times sometimes here at businesses to to hopefully offset traffic doesn't work. Uh, It's traffic all the time. So I'm driving in and there was an accident and it was resulting in me being super late. And this was before Waze. um, This was probably like 2010, 11 and i'm stuck and 10 o'clock is approaching and my boss there was super pissed if you're late even though it didn't matter like there was no Mm -hmm. reason why i had to be there exactly at that time but i remember i was like just pounding on my steering wheel just angry just hurting my hand because i was gonna be late and i was gonna have to deal with like the wrath and i decided like if i was ever in a position where i had the power to decide when people start and the consequences of when they start and those sorts of things if they don't require a hard start time, I'm not going to require them to do that. So, and I apply that philosophy, like not that exact philosophy, I mean, I do apply that as much as possible. But like that overall, like the underlying issue of that is, if I don't need to be rigid about something, I'm not going to be rigid about something. Like yeah. I, I, I give people, I give people, all of my people, I give them a goal, like, like, it doesn't mean like a personal goal, but like, like an objective for their individual task that I need them to do. Now that mm-hmm. whether it be like in fraud, like having the review rate at X or having the chargeback rate at X or responding to chargebacks in X amount of time. Those are like fraud examples. But how you get there is up to you, like for the most part. Uh although yeah. I might put you some rails that you try and go on. But for the most part how you get there is is I give the autonomy to do that. Because uh, I don't want to be a micromanager. I hate being micromanaged so I don't want to be a micromanager. But what I want is when my people are on their journey, they're on those mm-hmm. rails trying to get to that goal. Is if they hit a bump or hit a snag, then they come to me and say, "Hey, Jordan, this is in our way. Can you move it?" And that's what I want. I want to be the the, the blocker right. or remover, you know. And I've, yeah. I, I of course like try to be as hands off as I can, but while guiding the people, and and that works for a lot of my folks. Like a lot of them, uh, there mm-hmm. are people that that it doesn't work you know there's there's folks that just can't live in that type of environment and that's nothing wrong with that some people really like to have a lot of directions they need to come in and be told every day exactly what to do and they have to go and do that and and there's nothing wrong with that and and those people typically will work themselves out of the organization on their own. Um, if they don't like my style leadership, I've only had a few people ever really quit on me. And I would say most of them it's more economic based <laughs>
1: mm-hmm, than necessarily right.
0: based on, on my style, you know, but I, I do support my people. I let my people grow like all of my people. You can find them all on LinkedIn that used to work for me. You can ask them that, you know, but I think that as, as I go through this journey to be a people leader, as I get more into it, I'm like 10 years in on it now. Um, it's, it's just, I've settled into my ways you know but I still am very curious like I got a lot of books on the shelf behind me here for like the CEO mindset you know I got radical candor up there which I know is like super popular again it's like coming back like I know um, Live Nation is doing this thing called Rise right now which is it's kind of like a um, repackaging of what radical candor is right Um, so you know you got to be emotionally like vulnerable to everybody Mm -hmm. and I think that sometimes um, um, some of the the parts on that they skip out on. Well, you have to have a relationship with the person before you can just let them have it. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know, you got to kind of know somebody. So, yeah. So you you have a couple of different styles that you you've used in the past, or that you kind of reference that you've pulled things from. Can you talk about those a little bit?
1: Yeah. So a number of years ago, I studied um, a master's degree in something called change agent skills and strategies with the University of Surrey, with it with an organization called the Human Potential Research Group, and um, essentially it's looking at looking at affecting and managing organizational change from a concentric perspective. So you start with change of yourself and then of the team, then of the organization. And so it always starts from within out rather than trying to change the external factors before you've thoroughly changed yourself. Um, So there's a lot of inquiry there in terms of what, and and receiving feedback uh, uh, co-counseling with, with peers and that sort of stuff, peer group work and that kind of thing using mainly three models uh neurolinguistic programming transactional analysis and gestalt therapy so looking at creating organizational change from those three therapeutic psychological models um and it's really looking at um some of those models well i've, I've there's a couple of models that i've used um because they're kind of quick and easy one of the ones is uh, kurt lewin uh his um model around leadership styles and there's a questionnaire that i've I sometimes go through with people just to look at their preference. We all have all three styles. So um, we all have, and the, and the three styles being uh, autocratic, which is where you're telling people what to do, democratic, where you're asking people, what do you think we should do? And then laissez faire, which is essentially giving the person autonomy. Um, and there's a question questionnaire you go through what's your predominant style? Now, if you've got someone who's brand new, of course, you're a bit more autocratic. You're a bit more telling people what to do, when to do it, how to do it. Um, when you're democratic, it's it, it fits in more of a style when you've got somebody who's you know pretty experienced or maybe has experience that you don't have. So you're trying to solve a problem. You're trying to create a process and you bring in different people and you decide amongst yourselves. So I kind of think that that's a, very much a... Um, almost like a Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek Next Generation, right? (laughs) Very different to Kirk. Kirk was a bit more autocratic, right? Kirk was do this, do that. John Luke Picard was I sound like a real nerd. I'm not that into hey. Star Trek. I'm not I'm not a geek. Sure. But uh, <laughs> but John Lou Picard would get all of his people in the ready room, right? And they'd all talk. He'd find out what Riker thought, he'd find out what Troy thought, he'd find out what Ev- Geordi Geordie thought, you find out what other people thought, and then make a decision on that basis. And then the final one's laissez-faire, which is basically, I guess. I don't know, maybe more of a Han Solo type of of leadership. I'm
0: I'm reading this thing right now. It sounds more like what I just described.
1: (laughs) Right, yeah. So it's really around, hey, look, you guys, you know, you've got the knowledge, the skills, and experience, and you can afford to do that when you've got an experienced team. So Lewin really is one of the sort of founders or or one of the sort of grandfathers of modern um, leadership theory um, and change theory. So he talked about the three stages of change. Uh, leadership styles, and he's starting the sort of late forties, early fifties, and he's one of those one of those kind of Stephen Covey types of leadership gurus when people weren't talking about organisational change and, and leadership, and he comes at it from a um, a psychothera- psychotherapeutic type of uh, background. So it's again, it's looking at what's your sort of predominant style. Um, personally, I'm more of a kind of the democratic style of of leadership, which is um, finding the consensus, what do other people think, bringing in. Um, uh, other expertise from external sources, maybe people who don't necessarily aren't necessarily directly involved in the decision, but who might have a perspective. Getting a consensus, finding out some different options, and then finally making this decision myself. And I certainly employed that when I was running the TV channel, um, because people, you know, pe- people had opinions, and it, you know, it's it's because it was about jewelry, right? So I'd ask people. Oh, yeah. One example <laughs> would be. I I had a, I had samples of a hundred different pairs of sunglasses, and I needed to choose ten to put on the channel and sell them. So I got all the hundred, and I got every member of staff in the, in the in the organisation um, during their lunchtime, and I gave them pizza. But every single member of staff to come into the room and choose ten, and then I basically chose the most popular ten, put those on the air, and we sold them. So. A very trite kind of example, but I'd often bring in my management team if we had certain you know, decisions to make and I find out their consensus. And again, ultimately I'd make that decision of what we were going to do. And it might be none of the suggestions that came out. I might just go with my own, uh, instincts and my own gut feel for right and wrong. Sometimes I was right. And sometimes I was wrong. Um, so that's kind of my predominant style
0: is there ever like a a hybrid between like for example when when i make like major decisions like i change the software that we're going to use at a company um i tend to do a more democratic approach to it i'm like what Mm -hmm. do you guys think what would you guys want to do like you're going to have to live with this every day so what are your opinions um bring in like finance teams because they're going to have to see how the reporting works and those sorts of of decisions uh i make them in a more democratic fashion but Mm. i would say like the the day-to-day i run into more laissez-faire yeah. That sounds so bad.
1: <laughs> well, no, I think it's appropriate. Again, if you've got an experienced team, you don't need to be micromanaging people. You don't need to be on top of them. Um, uh, if it's, you know, if it's BAU, then certainly a laissez-faire approach certainly works. And I think for me, when I'm it's almost like um, how high are the stakes? If it's my ass in the sling, I'm more autocratic.
0: Yeah, it makes you sense. Know
1: <laughs> and I've been and I've been in that position whereby you know, we we floated on the Singapore Stock Exchange, and we had when um, we were massive, we were twelve times oversubscribed. We raised a ton of money so we could set up in other territories, and uh, which meant came with a lot of pressure. So I was sales and marketing director, and when it came down to why aren't we making more sales, it was it was my ass, you know, in the firing line. So I was a lot more autocratic. So I would be a lot more, um, you know, I'd have the Channel on when in every waking moment, which is about 20 hours a day. And on in my days off, my time off the evenings when I was I'd come home from work at eight o'clock at night, having been there from seven in the morning. And I'd come home and I'd have the channel on, I'd be watching, Why are you selling it? Where and I'd have the channel on one screen and I'd have my laptop with what it what things sold from before. And I'd say no, and I'd phone up the gallery, I was awful. I'd phone up the gallery and say, you do not sell that piece of jewelry for any lower than that. The thing that's coming up next, because this is the lowest it sold. This is the highest it sold. You do not change, you know. And I was, <laughs> I became quite unpopular at certain points because, you know, at the end of the day, it was I would, I would be fired. And I and I had to stand in front of a board, literal board members, and say why sales were down and explain myself and tell the people what you know, tell the board what I was going to do. And these were, you know, for some and some people on the board were from investment firms because we'd listed and, you know, we'd raised a ton of money and everything else. So, you know, it was it was really high pressure. So it depends on the stakes. So if the stakes are high, I'm going leaning more towards autocratic. If the stakes are lower, um, it's I'm more democratic. And when the stakes are low, very low, it's BAU. Absolutely laissez faire. Look, you decide. You make the decision. You get on with it. You're you've got the experience.
0: Yeah, I love that um, that you can go between those like I think that that's super important because like when I was originally like looking at this when I was preparing this I was like dang I'm gonna have to like pick myself to like exist and like thrive in this one category and it's very freeing to me mentally I'm just saying like me personally to know Mm -hmm. that like I can I can dance in in this one but then I can you know I can step into these other ones when I need yeah
1: And it is a predominant style. It's not. It's not like you are always. If you say you're, you know, if you come out with the questionnaire, I am laissez-faire. It's not, and I and I can send this to you, and you can send, you know, you can include this if you like. I'll find the questionnaire that people can can look at. Um, If if you find that you know your natural tendency is is to be more democratic or laissez-faire or autocratic, again, it doesn't doesn't mean that you can't do those other ones. It's just that that's your natural tendency. Um, And you know, I know managers that I've worked with who are, you know, and, and senior leaders, uh, who are extremely, let's say fair all the time. And it's desperately frustrating because you want them to make a decision rather than be, um, yeah, I don't know, you know, yeah, cool. I, I guess you, you know, the, you know, the business, you know, what's what you, you get on with it and you want someone to say, I disagree, or I think we should maybe do this or at least inquire and ask, well, I'm just curious, why is it you're doing it that way? Is there a better way we can do it and challenge, you know, I, I, Personally, much more I much prefer sort of that style of being led, um, a bit more sort of democratic, not autocratic, but a bit more democratic. Um, but uh, but you know, and, and I've worked for entrepreneurs, right? And working for an entrepreneur, I don't know if you've ever worked for somebody in a smaller business who's an entrepreneur. They are they are wonderful to start off with the first few yeah. weeks because they really get you on board. You know, I've been sales. I was I was sales director for a um, a health. Well, basically, they made protein. They made protein powder and hey. supplements for bodybuilders. And they had a TV channel. And I was a sales director for one month for the okay. guy who owned the company. And the first couple of weeks, he was brilliant. He was like, you know, you're my guy. You're going to take over the company. I trust you. And within two weeks, he was on my ass about every single decision. He always micromanaged like crazy. Yeah, you don't want to do it like that. Why are you doing not this? I wouldn't have done it like that. And it was like, are you do you trust me or not? So started off... Appearing to be very laissez-faire, but then became immediately became autocratic. If I was suggesting things or executing plans that it, things that he wouldn't have done, Well I you know, used to think, well, you've got to this point, and you've you, your growth is at zero for the last two years. In fact, you're losing market share. Maybe we should try something different. But, you know, it's that thing we said, you know, of, well, we've, I've always done it like this and it's always worked in the past. And, I, and look at how many great sports cars I've got. Yep, you know, well, and- may, That might be a clue in there in terms of how much money you're t- taking out of the business. Cause you've got like Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Porsches and, you know, you've got like six luxury high-end supercars. That might be something in that, you know, why, why growth has, is, uh, has leveled down is actually, you know, we're receding. So you know, I've worked for people like that and they, again, start off appearing to be one way, but a very much a different way. And, and being able to tra- uh, traverse those different styles, again, depending on the situation, I think is I think is important. And again, being one style all the time, I guess there's a comfort in that because you always know. How to deal with someone who's always autocratic or always laissez-faire. But it's desperately frustrating. There's downsides to each of these styles. Again, being a democratic, you know, there's downsides to the democratic side of things when stakes are high. We haven't got time to sit around and get everyone's opinion, make a freaking decision. Yeah. Similar with you know, the downside obviously of an autocratic, and none of these have got any value judgment in them. It's not bad to be one or the other. Um, but being being an, an autocrat. Is really needed when sometimes when, you know, stakes are high, you know, and I'm, you know, a very trite example would be, you want a fireman, a firefighter to be autocratic. <laughs> you now, know that's an mean?
0: excellent example right You there. know what I mean? When he's busting yeah.
1: through your door, you no. want a coach on a football team, you know, when you're in, oh, I'll use a baseball analogy. When it's the <laughs> bottom of the ninth, right? You don't want to sit around, hey guys, what should we do? You know, yeah, you want someone to put a different
0: to, in?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To grab the game and the team by the, you know what's and sort of go, no, this is what we're doing. I'm putting this person in and we're going to go for whatever.
0: Those are excellent examples. Yeah. The, the, the football one. That was good. That was, a, that was a good change up there, you know, because football's you. different than my football.
1: <laughs> well, I was using your. I was going to use your football, you know, Bill Belichick, I imagine is not very um, democratic. Yeah. That's Unless it's about. with Tom Brady, then he, I guess he was.
0: Yeah. Cause then Tom Brady kind of ran that team too. You know, I like when they'd yell on the sideline. Yeah. Um. So, one of the things that that i'm i've been seeing and i took a, a leadership class a couple of years ago uh, for a few days like a seminar thing it was put on by my company at the time um is this new style of um of like i guess call it can be called empathy so it used to be the old days was you know check your baggage at the door you're here to work like just don't worry about anything your personal life doesn't matter and i think during covid more than ever is the work life and and your home life and like your emotional life is, is what I'm getting to is blended. So I think that, especially with like the mental health awareness that the world's going through, I think that there's a lot more focus on making sure that people's minds are right, both at work and away from work. And I think mm. that businesses are, are way more in touch with with the emotional side of of having people in there. So one of the things was like they would always say is like, it, there no longer is check your 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 emotions at the door. It's yeah, people are bringing them. They're wearing them on their sleeves, and you need to figure out how to not just like work around it, but work with it, you know, like, mm. like have the empathy to like to to have conversations with people if they're willing to have them, of course, but like bring bring the emotional side in into a business. do you have you seen any of that? have you have you worked with any of those sorts of things at all?
1: Yeah. I mean, from, the the what the consultancy company I first worked for when I was 20, so that's going back 31 years now. I know it's unbelievable to to look at my youthful face. Um, but 31 years, the company I worked for was, was really ahead of its time. Um, it was branded cult-like at the time because okay. it sort of came the, the company came out of um long before my time from the est movement that that personal development break you down build you up type of um movement of the early 1970s right from out of california and it was very kind of psychological it was very um you know explore the inner your inner feelings the person go beyond your limitations and it and they used to do like week-long seminars break you down build you up type of stuff right so kind of a bit culty um, and it was sort of born out of that. And again, long before my time, by the time I got to the organization, we were a telemarketing company and then we branched that into um, into consultancy. And it was the sort of the, the mid eight, early to mid 80s, the boom in um, call centers. Everyone had to have a call center and a helpline and the you know direct marketing, all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's kind of where I started a lot of my career uh, in that sort of call center, contact center, you know, telemarketing kind of, uh, area. And again, that's a very people based business and it's all about, um, making sure that the, I always say the human being is as valuable as a human doing. So you're not just employing someone who's coming in to perform a task. You're, you're employing a human being and they have value. So they contribute to the organization. They don't just turn up and hang up their soul, Um, on the peg with their coats you know they don't put their heart in the locker along with their lunch so I've always very much from for my whole of my working life I've been from that perspective and philosophy so to think that there are other people or or there's a movement more now to look at those kind of things is is, it's not astounding to me because obviously I've worked in lots of organizations but it is like oh great you you're catching up to what's important in organizations because I've always been there for my whole I've been privileged I guess my whole of my working life or certainly the beginning of my working life, that standard was set for me. And I think it also speaks to things like diversity, equity, inclusion as well, which is looking at, you know, again, it's the it's the human being inside, not just yeah. their religion, their sexuality, their their physical ability, their, you know, the color of their skin, their sex, you know, their, their gender how they identify. It's not just about that. It's all about, you know, I value you as a human being, not because you are this or that or the other or this height, this weight, this religion, whatever. Um, So I think it speaks to that too, which is I value the human being as much as I do the human doing. So it's not just your output that I'm looking for. I'm looking for your input too. I want your whole self because that's more satisfying for you and it's more productive. And we all have, I think... I mean, I'm not sure if I do. I think I kind of do. I, obviously, there's a level of professionalism that I have in my work life that I guess I don't have. Obviously, when I'm when I'm in different mixed company. So when I'm doing the podcast that we both know, you know, I'm I'm ve- I'm a very different kind of. I, I show a different, I guess, side yeah. of myself, and that's a character that I play too, right? So it's not just that's not me being you know me. It's it's a part of me. It's a character, I guess. Yeah, I and I
0: I think that like me. Knowing you even this much, you know, like I know, I've talked to you at conferences, you know, I, I mm. see you here, and I very much can. And even when you when you talk on on that other podcast, um, it's the Ralph Report. If anybody ever uh, wants to know, like that's how I I came to know Steve. Is I'll tell the story real quick. Just yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I listened to this podcast called the Ralph Report. Um It is features Ralph Garman, who used to be on the K-Rock radio station here in Los Angeles. And I used to listen to that religiously on my drive into work. Um, And I always thought Ralph was hilarious. He does voice impressions. He's really quick-witted. He's really brilliant with how he approaches subject matter and how he talks about the subject matter. And I I, I just have such an entertainment podcast daily, hour-long, listen to it. Well, you were always on there as their UK correspondent. Have hilarious stories with all of the Spice Girl stuff, you know, Daniel Radcliffe, like these, these things that you bring up that, you know, it's like giving us news that you know damn well we don't know about in the US and don't really focus on. And it's it's hilarious. But a long time ago I had a certified come into my my building to do some training at Ticketmaster. And they said they brought up these training videos, and they're like, Yeah, we have this comedian from the UK who works for us that does all these training videos and his name is Steve Ashton. And I was like, no way. Literally listen to his podcast like every single day. So it was a really small world holistic moment. I shot you an email and then uh, we met up in Nashville and you know, we've been doing this ever since. <laughs> yeah. And so that's that's a long story short there on that one. But uh, that's kind of how I get to, got to know you in the other podcast I'm aware because I see you when you have your, your candid moments on that podcast. Um yeah. And I, I talked a little, you, you know. Yeah, I've like talked this. a little
1: recently just in terms yeah, a little recently in terms of um uh just kind of like struggles that I've had. You know, I, I've um just recently started my you know, started my own practice and that comes with an equal amount of trepidation, fear, anxiety, as well as sort of excitement too, right? So, you know, there's a lot of there's a ton of stuff there. Um and I was you know, I, I, I struggle, I was struggling a little bit, you know, of, of feeling, you know, anxiety around it. So I talked about a little bit about that on yeah. the
0: podcast. And I thought so that again, was it's, really brilliant, like to be, like, it's hard to be vulnerable. And I think it comes back to like that same thing where, like, we were just talking about like having that emotional brought into the, the world and and that, that podcast has a pretty big audience. Mm, and yeah. I was, it was really comforting because I've had mental health struggles with anxiety. Um, I've had, especially when it's in the Bay Area, like I I had to stop myself and say, Mm. there's something wrong with me right now. And I need to fix it. And to to have that honest, vulnerable conversation with you with that audience is, is extremely valuable for people to hear, for people to know that they can be like that. Like it's okay to feel that way. And,
1: you know, Jordan, I think again, going back to sort of, you know, being in business, I think one of the, well, from my experience, at least anyway, certainly at a certified, the last few years, I talk, I do a lot of, um, I've done a lot of work around things like. So, I did a, I did a session uh, that was great. We did it first of all on a, another podcast that I did for a while with with my friend Carrie, <clears throat> which is a personal professional development podcast. And um, uh, we did a, we did a, a, an episode about coming back from COVID. And we did a few exercises on that. It was one looking at what have we won? What what do what have we gained from that? So a lot of people gained a lot of from lockdowns and everything else, which is I've really learned to take things into perspective. Decided what's what's important in my life. I've reconnected more closely with my partner, with my kids, with my friends because I've kind of you know felt lonely and I've not had anyone around. So that's been some of the things we've gained. Other things that we've lost too, right? So for some people it was a lot more lonely and isolating because they were spending because if they live on their own like I do. They live on their own and sort of work a bit more on their own. That day-to-day interaction of with people was lost. So you know, there has been a huge mental health crisis on on that side. So we really reviewed what have I won? You know, what have I gained? What have I lost? What plans am I making going forward? And I ran that session at a certify, and I had a ton of people reach out to me um, on Slack, basically saying. What a great conversation to have. I'm so glad we're addressing mental health issues, et cetera, et cetera. And American Express is a really good company for that, for offering resources. And I don't know about you, but certainly, you know, being a, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy who's, 50, who's 51. You know, I'm not going to go and, and use those resources in my company to go and do that. I'm just not. I don't want to admit. I'll talk to my friends and family about it. You know, and I'll chat to my mates and and, and say, look, I'm really struggling I kind of don't know what to do and, and you know have that sounding board, but I'm not going to use my company. I don't yeah. want to have the, no matter how much they say it's confidential that sort of stuff, there's still a part of me which is reluctant to open up uh, to my employer about that right I even though it wouldn't that. be my employer right yeah. So tons of people reaching out to me saying what a difference it made. We did a session on um, we, I was running some sessions on diversity, equity and inclusion too. Um, around what you know what's unconscious bias et etc and I had a few people reach out to me and say look I'm gay or I'm bisexual my my uh, colleagues don't know about it and I'm scared of you know speaking up about it when I hear them make homophobic comments etc et etc et you know so I had a ton of people reach out to me saying it's great being able to talk about that and I always always share my experiences because I think you know as a, as a facilitator and a trainer it's important to do that and, and show my struggles and everything else so I think that, you know, that subject around talking about our struggles, our mental health, our, our emotional well-being, our mental well-being, spiritual well-being is really important, particularly given what we've just come through, where um, you know, we, we've all been through, I think we can all relate, you know, we we've not been on the same, we've not been on the same boat, because clearly, you know, someone who's got tons of money and a nanny and four houses is on different, very different looking boat to what I am, but we've certainly been on a very similar journey. And talking about that kind of stuff is critical. Now, the, the the risk in a way is if you're somebody who's trying to talk to a leader or a colleague who hasn't got that technology or equipment or knowledge or skills or experience in being able to deal with that, it can have a really bad effect. So if I'm somebody going to my boss and saying, look, I can I can talk about this stuff, and if I get an expression we use in the UK, mugged off, if they don't really respond to it, I'll kind of go, yeah, well, you know, you can go and speak to that person about that, go and speak to HR about it or whatever, then that can have a really bad effect. So I do think leaders these days need to have that input knowledge um, and be given some input of how to deal with, how to sensitively and authentically deal with other people's um, challenges. Then I think that's absolutely critical. You know, it speaks to, Emotional intelligence—you know that skill—and again, that's a subject that, in the learning world and learning development world and leadership training and all of that stuff, is becoming more and more interesting. And um, so, so, what, and I, I'm, I teach people a bit about—I've been on a few courses around emotional intelligence. I'm not an expert, but I can. The way I try to break it down is into sort of four quadrants. If you look pure, um, if you look at the pure side of emotional intelligence, there are five elements to it. I try and keep it to four, just to make it really simple. So it's really around self-awareness, understanding what are my drivers, what are my triggers, how am I feeling right now? So it's having that awareness of of understanding yourself, understanding your thoughts, understanding that your thoughts aren't necessarily reality. So when you're thinking about, oh, this thing, terrible things happening, because, you know, we tend to think the worst, you know, very few of us go, oh my God, what happens if it all goes right? You know, not, not many people think that. We always think what happens if it goes wrong? We always kind of fear the worst typically, yes, right? Because it prepares us, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Um,
1: so it's looking at what, uh, do I know myself? Do I know my flaws? Do I know my strengths? What is real? Um, I am not a, a horrible, awful, evil human being, you know, being able to have that. I am equally not the world's, you know, God's gift to this thing. But it's having an understanding. I am a sublime creature of light. I am also a total asshole. And those two things are equally true, right? So I can be that. I also can be that. So it's having an understanding of and a self-awareness of the things that drive us and our failures and our mistakes and our victories and treating those two things equally. So that's self-awareness. The second part of it is self-regulation. So being able to notice all of that stuff. So when I'm triggered, if someone pisses me off, if someone cuts me up on the 405 or if if I go to the supermarket and I see someone parking in a disabled bay who is clearly not disabled or someone parking in the parent and child space when they clearly don't have children and it's a Saturday afternoon that I don't, you know, smash in their windscreen.
0: Oh, I'm super guilty of um, getting involved in situations that I shouldn't. And me too. That, that this right here is definitely right now. I feel like you're speaking right to me. Even though you're literally yeah. speaking right to me, but this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is this is hitting home right now. <laughs> yeah.
1: So it's being able to self-regulate to go. I am triggered by this thing, and I and I refuse to let it put me into and to unproductive or destructive behavior or whatever it may be. You know, this thing happened today. Reach for whatever medication, legal or non-legal, I should be doing right. So that's one thing or being, I'm, um, you know, I've just smashed a plate. Now I'm going to be pissed off all day or this thing's happened. And now, you know, it's ruined the whole weekend or whatever it might be. Right. So he's go, No, nope, this happened. It's fine. It's not the end of the world. Um. So he's being able to self-regulate. So that's about me. Right. So that's the first thing. So that's uh, working out and sorry, inwards and outwards. The second part is working outwards and inwards. It's understanding other people. So the next part of it is understanding of others. So understanding other people's motivations. That person is not an evil person because they did this. That person is going through some troubling times, doesn't have the equipment, doesn't have the mental capacity or the intelligence or skills to deal with that situation. That's why they're acting out. So it's understanding and appreciating and viewing other people's behavior as simply that, as simply behavior, not that they're an evil person. So it's understanding other people and the fourth stage of it is then helping that person regulate their own behavior so it's the first stage is understanding me and then being able to regulate me understanding other people and help other people regulate themselves so that's the sort of the four elements that i teach people and there's a and again i can send you some links to this but there's there's a number of different exercises you can do to find out where your strengths are now i'm very strong in three of those, the thing I'm not so great at is self-regulation. I can't keep my mouth shut.
0: Well, you know.
1: It's, and it's I, think, usually- no, I think that may be similar to you, Jordan, which is one, one of the reasons we get on. I can't keep it shut. Yeah. Now, I'm getting better at it as I get older.
0: But I'm even,
1: <laughs> you know, both you and I are fairly uh, active on social media. Oh, yeah. So if I see something dumb that someone's put in, I find it very difficult not to engage. And oftentimes I'm getting better at this. I'll type something out. I'll yeah. post it. And then 30 seconds later, I'll go, what's the point? I'll go back and delete it. Cause I, uh, it's like, what's I'm the point? A, I'm not going to change that person's mind. Particularly about, yeah. you know, here in the UK, and, and I know things are, are somewhat screwy where you are here in the UK. Cool. Politically, it's just, uh, it's a dog's breakfast. It's absolute shit show. Um, so I find it really difficult not to engage on Twitter, for example, when I see things put out that I disagree with. I you had know, to leave I, grew up with, I had
0: to. <laughs> I had to self-regulate yeah, I mean, and leave.
1: <laughs> I mean, things like, you know, food insecurity. So I grew up as a, as a kid with food insecurity, um, you know, uh, at certain periods. So I know what that's like. So the fact that, you know, f- there are more food banks in the UK than, you know, there's more need for people to get free food than during the war, et cetera, et cetera, just absolutely drives me insane. So I find it difficult to not engage. So I always come out less strong on the self-regulation. I can't sometimes keep it together not to say or do stuff. So, and I think, you know, in part, it means, I think what, and I see the plus side in that, in that, it means I'll fight for other people too. It means I will, um I will fight injustice on behalf of other people. So I like to see that there's a there's a little bit of a good part to that, even if it gets me in trouble.
0: Yeah, that's whenever I do get involved, I uh it's always I tend to stick up for the little guy, you know, yeah. but the uh, the big guy never understands, and they just retort to their normal bullshit yeah. that they always try to say and talking points and those sorts of things.
1: But if you're interested in motion intelligence, and I find it I find it a really interesting, uh really interesting skill. And it's really around. You know, or EQ emotional uh, quotient. Um, the basic principle is that we have an IQ, which is an intelligence quotient, which is our ability to retain and regurgitate and, and do process thinking and all of that. Emotional intelligence is really around is really around how capable uh, yeah how capable we are of understanding and managing emotions in ourselves and others. And it was a um, it's a philosophy. And, and there's criticisms of it, of course, as there is with any leadership, yeah. management, change model, um, by a guy called Daniel Goldman. And um, there's a few books that he's written about it, and there's a ton of resources online about emotional intelligence. And I find it really fascinating, and I find it really quite comforting that you know emotional intelligence, managing of myself and others, is something that is is again becoming you know a lot more uh, integral, an integral skill to have as a leader, because you know people are messy. And these days, particularly with the great resignation that's sort of happening, that we're told is happening, you know, people leaving jobs um, to move on to different places, getting away from toxic managers and leaders and moving on to uh, other things as they've taken time to reflect during during COVID. I think it's it's really important to have that, at least an appreciation and understanding as a leader, the fact that because this person is is upset, you don't have to fix them. You know, you don't have to. Put your arm around the shoulder and fix them. What you've got to do, maybe what you've got to do is listen, and it depends on depends on your skill level and experience and comfort level of dealing with that. And you know what? And Again, this uh, uh, not uh, the risk of sounding reductive. I think a lot of men, for example, find it difficult dealing with upset, whether it's from men or from women. Um, it's it's kind of difficult and they find and they kind of shy away from it because they don't quite know what to say or what to do, particularly in a work situation. And look, it's tricky too, right? How do I deal with this person who's really upset? Am I allowed to physically put my arm around their shoulder? Yeah. Is that appropriate or not? There's there's some minefields and some uh yeah, some a minefield to kind of go to get through. But I think simply understanding and where the person's coming from, what's the driving that what's their driving motivation? You know, and it even speaks to things like um you know, dealing with things like lateness, right? So someone's someone who turns up late a lot, what is going on with that person? Rather than berating them just for being a terrible, shitty employee, understanding, right, this person clearly doesn't want me on their back all the time. So knowing that I'm going to be on their back and yet they're still late, clearly there's something bigger going on. Um, so can I understand that? And it's appreciating that. And it might just be that, you know, they're really disorganized, you know, they don't care about the job. Well, maybe have that conversation with them in terms of saying, look, I just don't get that you want to be here. So, you know, why don't you, you know, either knuckle down and get on with it or leave? That's you have got options. And I'm not saying you should do one or the other, but you've got options. So it's it does it's not simply about sitting down and having endless heart to hearts with people. It's understanding and appreciate, be able to take a step back and look at the wider context in terms of people's behavior. Coming at it from an emotional point of view.
0: Yeah, I think um, one of the things that always freaks people out about me a little bit is when I have staff come into my office, and I try to. Everybody says they got the open door policy, you know, but I will listen and learn. Like I will sit there and listen, and people cry. I always have Kleenex and stuff in my office. But mm. I think it, it surprises people sometimes when they're like, "Well, it surprises other people. It surprises HR usually when I allow my staff to openly talk about them applying." or thinking about leaving. And because mm-hmm. I wanna know why. But I also don't want them to be scared to to have those conversations. You know, I wanna know what well what are you thinking about. Usually it's 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 monetary, usually it's money motivated. Um but I will like let's say they want to apply for like an internal position, like somewhere else, you know, like the AP team or something like that. Like I will help them
1: mm-hmm.
0: um like get to where that they want to go. Because my job still is a people leader, even even if it's not on my team is help these people grow, like grow in their professional lives and their personal lives, feel comfortable coming to me with, with everything that they have, you know, I have a lot of, I know a lot of personal things about a lot of my staff, you know, and they trust that that information with me, you know, and I think that it's, it's exactly right, you know, like, if someone is coming in late all the time, well, why, you know, well, it's because they're trying to get their cousin to school, you know, because they He got taken from his family somewhere over here and now he's with you and you're trying to make sure that he has a good life, you know, things like that. Like that's important, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's that's something that that would be important to them. Yeah. And it should be important to me too, because they work for me. And if there's a way that we can adjust their lives, like I wanna do that. Same thing with people that are going through massive trauma, deaths, you know, separations, those sorts of things. Like, I need to be understanding and and loyalty isn't even the right word, but a, a respect that you get from a staff member when you give them what they need is mm-hmm. just like unparalleled, you know, like, yeah, it's, it, it's rewarding for me as a people leader to know like that my staff doesn't have to be stressed. Like if, if their mother dies, they know that they're going to be able to have time to go grieve and mourn. And take care of the business they know that you know so they don't mm-hmm. have to be stressed like i remember like i've missed funerals and stuff at old jobs where like i'm like okay my grandpa died uh but i can't ask for the time off because i'm going to get ripped if i try and ask and yeah. like that's just and that was just the normal like that was yeah. normal for everybody until a few years ago and mm-hmm. i think like i mean granted like this more emotional sharing has it does have its downsides, you know. It puts it puts people in, in awkward positions, you know. But if you're able to navigate those waters and, and get through it, I think the reward is pretty significant at the end of the day.
1: I think so, yeah. And I think, I mean, I, and I, I absolutely agree with you because there are some people who will, again, as we say in the UK, take the piss. So they will, you know, there will be people who will, will kind of go, and I've seen it happen. Particularly, you know, I worked a lot in the 80s and 90s, in the call center industry, where you have young people straight out of college, their first job, and they know how to sort of buck the system. So they'll come in and uh, they know they've done something terrible or messed something up or, you know, credited a customer's account or, or double charge or something. They'll have done something wrong. And the, uh, it it, the, and it starts the waterworks, and they kind of go over the top exaggerate what's going on to deflect that they've done something wrong, and to sort of get out of it. Or they're late, you know, three times in a week or whatever, and it's all like, oh no, I can't, I can't, no, I just need some time on my own. Please don't yeah, talk. to they me They want about you to pity they, them versus yeah, exactly. Yeah. So to try and get out, and I've seen that happen. And um, so again, but I but I think the upside and look being. A bit cold about it, I guess, uh, ha- happier, secure, um, authentic people are more productive. You know, they are. So if someone's feels secure and happy and content in their job, they will produce more. The ROI on that employee will be higher. So there is an economic, you know, business benefit to it. They'll stay longer. Um, they will have less sick days. So from a just purely sort of dollars and cents perspective, it works as well as it's the right thing to do, you know, from a human to human perspective. So it's a win win, you know, treating people with respect and, uh, you know, with and coming at working with them from an authentic p- point of view, understanding where their motivations are, m- letting them know that, you know, this happened, no one's going to die because you press the wrong button or whatever, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, getting people to have perspective on things and correcting unproductive behavior, you know, if people are, uh, you know, an hour late back from their lunch, or they're taking far too many, you know, c- cigarette breaks, or whatever it might be, correcting that behavior, of course, um, but understanding the underlying causes of that. And I think understanding emotional intelligence is good. And uh, as I say, I'll I'll um, send you on along some links if you want to include that, so people Absolutely. can do an inventory themselves and see where they come out in terms of their strengths as well.
0: So, um, as we wrap up here, uh, this has been an excellent episode. I think this this content is really valuable to a lot of these listeners. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm super excited that we were able to get this and, and, and do this. Um, I was listening to you on the other podcast this morning, and I understand that you might be coming to LA uh, mm-hmm. to be doing a seminar. Uh, do you want to talk about that at all?
1: That'd be great. Yeah. So um, I so one of the things I so one, again, the thing that I my specialty in executive presence, which is around um, being able to authentically connect with people's hearts and minds in order to create a, a productive outcome for both parties. So that is from the perspective of um in group situations, when you're presenting, you're trying to engage people, you're trying to influence people, you're trying to get people to come along with you when you're trying to sell an idea, it's applicable if you're in a sales role, it's applicable if you're in an account management role, and it's very applicable if you're an SME who perhaps lacks that confidence in communicating. So at a Certify and American Express, I've trained over a 1,000 people globally, and those skills are applicable in whatever um, environment you are and in whatever role you are. Being able to communicate more powerfully and authentically and it's not about the mechanical behavior. If you look at any uh, information online about executive presence, all they talk about is things like use positive language, have a power stance, you know, all of that mechanical behavior. And it's not about that at all. It's about genuinely connecting with yourself and with other people, which takes emotional intelligence. And it's looking at things like being able to set an emotional agenda with people, things like You know, you go through, this is what we're going to cover in the meeting today. We're going to talk about this, talk about this, talk about this. That's the what. Now, setting an emotional agenda is why. What do I want from you as an audience? What I want from you as you walk out of this meeting, I want you, I'm going to go through the results for Q1. I want you to feel really confident that the plan that we're putting in place to get us back on track is not only going to get us back on track, but it's going to exceed our targets for next, next quarter. And I want you to feel confident about that. So I am going to do whatever it takes to make you feel confident. That's my objective. So you're setting an emotional agenda with people. Now, as a listener, you kind of go, wow, that's all right. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling
0: motivated right now.
1: <laughs> exactly right. We talk about things like... Um, I always talk about executive presence. It's like having a software update. So a lot of people work out of an old modality, an old way of working in their mind. Many people are operating on Windows 98 when they should be on Windows 11. So they're operating from a stance of, I'm not confident, I'm shy, I messed up that one time and everyone laughed at me, um, I never get the promotion, blah, blah, all the negative stuff. A lot of people work out of that modality, imposter syndrome, everything else. And what I do, hopefully, or in fact, I don't know, even hopefully, I know I do, is help people get to that core of them, back to themselves, back to that confident place that they were when they were four or five years old. Because you don't get many, you know, you don't get many unconfident one-year-olds or two-year-olds, right? That's when you're at your purest, before you've been spoiled and ruined by authority figures, by bullies, by parents, by teachers, by whoever has told you you're not good enough. So what I do is help people get beyond that and understand, hey, shit, this is really easy. My biggest fear was standing up in front of talking in front of people and talking to them or interacting in a difficult one-to-one situation. my God, this is far easier than making it. You know, no one's be more critical of you than you, right? You are your own worst critic. No one is more critical of me than actually, you know, my daughter's mother is probably (laughs) more critical of me than I am of me. But anyway, apart from her, um, no one is more critical of me. If I mess up a presentation, there's only one person who's going to remember that unless, unless I do something drastic, like pee my pants, but there's only one person who's going to remember that. And that's me. There's, uh, you know, if you're watching someone present the familiar term, Schadenfreude. Uh,
0: yes, I am, but not. You might yeah, have so to be Schadenfreude is <laughs> where you
1: take delight in other people's failures. Right. So oh, yeah, it's a bit a- like, you know, if you're in a sports bar and the waiter or wait, the wait staff drops a load of plates, everyone goes, Way! Yeah. that's schadenfreude, right? Or if you see someone fall over in the street and you laugh at them, that's schadenfreude. Now, the, it's, it, the Germans have another word, which is the opposite of schadenfreude, which is fremdschamen. And fremdschamen means where you are desperately embarrassed on other people's behalf. So okay. if you're watching someone present... And the slides go wrong and they start to get that funny rash on their neck and they start to stutter. It's horrible to watch.
0: I think because in, you feel for that. Yeah. So I think in like like when I when I do like panels and stuff like MRC, um when I do see people's that I, I do that when I'm in those environments, you know? Like I'm definitely yeah. the guy like if someone like trips and falls in the street, you know, I'll laugh. But like when I see in professional settings when it goes wrong, I wanna save them. Like I wanna like exactly. I wish I could bail you out of this exactly. situation.
1: Yeah, so it's like when doing stand-up, right? So I've I've absolutely killed on stage. I mean, absolutely stole the whole night of working with four or five comics, and I've been the best on stage. I've also absolutely died. I've been bloody awful. And there's nothing worse than watching someone squirm and suffer doing stand-up because you're there to make people laugh, and if you're actually making people feel uncomfortable, it's the complete opposite of the intention and yeah. the objective of being there. There's nothing worse than seeing that so you have a lot of agency as someone presenting someone standing up and trying to have presence in people you have a lot of agency and a lot of people don't know that because it's horrible to watch when you've not got agency and um, so when you've not when you when you do mess up the slides go wrong you start to get all panicky and stutter and splutter and everything else it's horrible to watch and we don't want to see that so we want you to do well but most people view it in an adversarial way you know the whole the old adage of imagine everyone naked. You know th- to get over your nerves. Well, no, don't don't do that. I, that's the worst thing you could possibly do. Be yourself. Be in the moment and be present. So I teach people about that. I teach people how to have uh, engaging one to one conversations. How to lead a conversation using a technique called the conversation cycle. Teach people the different kinds of questions to use. <clears throat> Excuse me. So like for example, when people are presenting, they'll go. Slide, slide, any questions, slide, slide, any questions, slide, slide. Now it's the Q&A section. Well, I don't do that. I, I try and teach people to be on the front foot rather than saying, any questions at all? Or
0: yeah, Okay, I good, I'll move on. I don't like to do that usually.
1: <laughs> no, exactly. So it's asking pointed questions. Now, it's, in order to look like, in order to be in control, and if I know I've got that troll in the room who, who always waits to the end to ask me that question, to try and make themselves seem smart and go, that's all very well. But have you thought about the implications of X, Y, Z? And you go, oh, shit, I hadn't. So what I do is go, you know that's coming. You know that person, the troll in the corner who wants to appear smart, is going to ask you, try and trip you up. Well, head him off at the pass. So go, right, first slide or whatever the controversial slide may be, go, great, all right, I'm going to pause there. John, now you're somebody who's got a very keen eye. For what sometimes can go wrong. Give me your feedback.
0: That's so funny. Because I literally, when I do like my my month-end slideshows, yeah, I always would call on specific people. I'm like, any questions, so and so? Because I always know that they're gonna have questions. You know, they're always they're always gonna say something. So just that's so funny that you say that because I jump right ahead of it too.
1: (laughs) And you make them the hero, but you make them the hero as well, Jordan. So it's like, John. And the really important thing is you give a bit of information. John, you're always really good at spotting what might go wrong. Tell me your feedback.
0: That's an excellent tip. I'm going to, I'm going to, John I'm gonna may gonna
1: go that. Well, <laughs> not sure. You know, and again, it's ra- rather than, and again, rather than saying any questions, saying what questions do you have at this point? It's a totally different, you know, it's a totally different, um, vibe. Right. Is anyone any questions? Any, and answer, asking it in that with the upward inflection. Please don't ask me that. Please don't. Please don't ask me any questions. Right. What questions do you have at this point? Is a completely different vibe from any questions at all. So it's little things like that. There's little techniques and things I teach people just to just to increase their confidence. Breathing exercises. We do some improv exercises Um, again, to deal with the flexibility, because in order to, you know, again, it's one of those things of like, if you're in a conversation or presenting, you've got your five points to make and someone throws you a curveball. there's nothing going to throw you off your presence than someone giving you something unexpected. So expect the unexpected and how to deal with it. So how do you deal with it? You know, do you do the thing of going, you know, that's a great question. You know, that's one technique of doing it. Um, or going, you know, I'm glad you asked me that question or something, but there's a way of dealing with the unexpected. And improv is a great way of doing that. Dealing with whatever. You know, one of the main philosophies of, of improv is yes and. So one of the the, the one of the techniques, one of the exercises we'll, we'll do is things like a yes and exercise. So you accept whatever's coming towards you, you change it a bit and you pass it back. And that's you in control. Um, it's, it's kind of what politicians do. Good politicians, I guess, when they get a question that they're not sure about. I mean, Pete Buttigieg is just the best at it. Taking what's coming at him, turning it around a little bit and then putting it back to the other person. He's really good at it. If you watch Pete Buttigieg being uh, interviewed and good politicians, I think are good at that. A lot of them are terrible at it, but a British politician in particular, terrible about it, terrible at it, but it's some of the techniques and those kind of things. So it's really around looking, breaking some of those interactions down into, into component parts and looking at what is it that I'm doing now that's taking away from my presence, my natural presence, you know, what is it that's, um, taking away from how I am normally. You know, I always, I don't believe there's a such thing as a shy person or as an unconfident person. Oh, I'm a shy person. Bullshit. People aren't born shy. You learn that behavior. So let's look at the circumstances in which require you to be more confident. That's when you lack it. You know, I always say confidence is like insurance. It's the thing you need the most when you have it the least, right? So, and it's not about faking it till you make it. It's being able, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. So being able to deal with what comes at you from a perspective of kind of going, oh, that's interesting. You know, that's a great question. I hadn't thought about that. Being honest and vulnerable. So it's all of that type of stuff, being flexible in your communication, being able to adapt styles depending on who you're talking to, setting context, being on the front foot, being in control. So that's a really long answer to your question. But we're doing a one-day seminar somewhere in Burbank, because uh, we'll do a live show of our podcast in the evening at the flappers comedy club, uh, late fall. So sort of the end of October, beginning of November, okay. hopefully, um, on a Saturday. So it'll be sort of nine till four, nine till five. Um, yeah. So it'll be an open course. Um, it's going to be a, bit, a discounted rate from what I would normally charge for a corporate client. So I think it'll be about 400 bucks because I would do venue hiring. and and yeah. LA is quite expensive yes, we are. for lunch and all of that. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, so that'll be them.
0: I'll make sure that um, when you get that all firmed up, that I share that uh, extensively with uh, the podcast no, audience you. here. Uh, Cause I think that, you know, I think this is going to resonate with a lot of people and that And do you know gonna... where I've
1: had the most? Yeah. Sorry, John, to interrupt. No, where I've had the most success with this program is with, with sort of technical SME. So we have at a certified, we had a lot of, as you can imagine, um, developers, uh, t- uh, technical SMEs, um, support, you know, technical support. And they kind of got the most out of it because it was kind of going, oh, I, I, this is really easy. I can, you know, when I'm called upon to do a, you know, an update on a project or a, a piece of work with clients or internally, and I go to pieces or I get someone else to do it, actually, I'm going to start doing these things because it, this is actually a lot easier than I'm making it. You know, so I think people who don't normally wouldn't normally go on these types of courses or be put forward for these types of courses because they're a technical person and they don't need to have interpersonal skills. Well, that's not the case these days, you know, um, particularly if people are looking to move on in an organization and move upwards um, or, or interact with clients. I've had a lot of success. The biggest difference is at least anyway, a lot of success with salespeople and, and leaders who think they've got it down and they haven't because all they're doing is the same old shit that everybody else is doing, you know. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting course. And, and you know honestly my drive my motivation it it is the thing i get them i get i get immense pleasure professionally out of two things one is performing and secondly is the, these courses that i run because to watch people have that light bulb moment where the software takes with the software update takes and go shit i'm doing things much faster much smarter much more efficiently effectively oh my god this windows 11 update is amazing um or ios or whatever uh, is amazing. Things just flow so much easier where I've been operating out of a very old way of working. It's a lot easier than I've been making it on myself. So uh, I get an immense amount of satisfaction an immense amount of, of, of person. Yeah. Personal satisfaction from seeing that light bulb moment and the light come on in people's eyes and go, Holy shit. I messed up in my communications class at college that I took for a semester and called the teacher mom instead of ma'am and uh, maybe peed myself in the, you know, at recess when I was seven and everyone laughed at me. Or, you know, the, the girl who I fell in love with when I was eight told me I stank and uh, I had cooties or whatever. And I had this major public embarrassment. Uh, I, I'm not that person anymore. I'm I'm, you know, a, a new and improved, better, more effective person because I've got beyond that self-imposed barrier um that i put around myself
0: excellent well i'm going to share uh all of your patreons that you have um both the one with carrie and your lights camera ashton uh those are hilarious uh, by the way Uh, thank you uh, i very much enjoy those uh i'll put a link up to your linkedin uh, and you. that way people, if like, if anybody uh, that's listening to this podcast feels that their organization might have some value out of, out of having Steve come on site and do uh, some seminars, like feel free to reach out to him. I'm sure that that he would be open to, to having those things. He's got courses that he's designed that um, would probably fit very well in almost everybody's and every company's uh, actual learning and development curriculum that they might existingly have. So, and
1: I yeah. think storytelling too, if I could talk briefly about storytelling, Absolutely. you know, if you look at, again, if you look at any um if you look at any course and, and this includes the linkedin learning stuff which i some of it's okay some of it's just dreadful uh they always talk about something the hero's journey well there are, it's always you have a protagonist they face a challenge they overcome the challenge well that's one way of that's one type of story and there are a number robert booker a great author and a, um, journalist wrote a book all about the different types of stories and the uh, emotional and chemical and neurological effect that they have. And he said there are basically sort of seven types of stories. And if you think of, I don't know if you are into Better Call Saul.
0: Uh, I did the first season. I haven't done the later seasons. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So
1: Better Call Saul, Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, any really good TV from the last 10 years is not about a hero's journey. Tony Soprano is not a hero. Walter White not a hero. Saul Goodman not a hero. They don't go on a hero's journey, and yet they're the most compelling and interesting TV we've had, yeah.
0: probably ever. Yeah, I'm, I'm big into Breaking Bad. I was, uh, I was yeah. all about that one.
1: <laughs> Walter White is not a hero. He starts off maybe you, you empathize with him, but he's a mass, he's a murderer, he's a mass criminal. But and his his journey is not a hero's journey in the slightest. Neither's Jesse's. So. You know, it, it's not just about the hero's journey. There are so many other ways of telling a story. And I talk a lot about things like the neurological, biological, psychological effects of stories, why they're important, the fact that they engage people. Um, it's a great way of uh, creating rapport and getting buy-in for an idea, using data to tell a story, et cetera. Um, and I talk about the techniques. Again, Again, I come from that performance background, so how to tell stories um, when you're selling You know, a lot of people, uh, salespeople use um, stories when they're trying to say, oh, interesting you say that. I had a customer who did that. They said the same thing. And then they took our solution and now they're finding this result. Well, that's one way of telling a story. But just being able to interact with people and engage them um, because you're telling a compelling story from a personal point of view. You're applying some techniques, absolutely. But uh, using storytelling in business, again, is a really important part of how we do business these days. And I teach people how to do that because, look, I've been a podcaster for years, uh, a TV presenter, um, a radio presenter, stand-up comedian, and a facilitator and a leader. So I've got all the experience you probably could need, other than being a journalist and, and a writer, right? But I write twenty minutes of comedy every week, so yeah, <laughs> I've got some experience. I've been doing that for the last five years. So,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this. I knew this was going to be a fantastic episode. uh, your your knowledge on these these subjects which are very important to people like it's just second to none so i'm really really happy that you were able to give me the time to come on and talk about this that it means a lot to me personally uh i'm really excited oh, to mate, see- anytime
1: <laughs> absolutely anytime my friend uh you know i'm a big fan of yours and i love you dearly. and um yeah anytime
0: Great. thank you once again uh everybody i'm gonna put all the links down there uh please 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 uh, reach out to steve and uh ha- have all the questions for him watches patreons they're hilarious uh just what 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 a great episode thank you very much again
1: you're very welcome you're doing a great job with this too you've really taken to it very naturally you've got a very natural conversational facilitative style so i think you're doing a great job
0: thank you so much all right everybody till next time